Good morning. Okay. Oh, glad you're here. Welcome to North Point. If it is your first Sunday, a special welcome. What's going to happen right now is the welcome books are going to come down. They're going to pass across. And uh, I want to talk a, a little bit more about them than I do typically uh, for a couple reasons. Um, we were having a conversation and this week about some stuff going on and it led to welcome books as, you know, conversations kind of get there in different places. Um, if you've been around a long time, you've heard us say every week, oh, yeah, fill out the welcome books and pass them down. Fill out the welcome books, pass them down. And if you're like most people, you're kind of thinking like, hey, I filled it out last week and that ought to be enough. I filled it out 10 years ago. That ought to... Why should I do it? Well, here's the reason why. There are two, really, two reasons why we want you to fill out the welcome books every week. The first is in a church the size of North Point, five, six hundred people, we can't always keep track of kind of where people are in their minds. We don't always hear about stuff. And we actually take those welcome books on Monday mornings and put them into the database. And and then the leadership, the elders, the staff, myself, we get a note that says, oh, this person's been gone for three weeks in a row or been gone for five weeks in a row or Sometimes it's more appropriate to say, oh, they haven't filled out their welcome book for five weeks in a row, even though they've they've been here. That helps us immensely because there are some times that we don't know stuff's going on. We may not know that you're in the hospital. We may not know that you've lost a job. We may not know what's going on in your life. And the welcome books are just one of those little triggers that help us immensely do that. So if you can fill that out each week, that'd be great. It's also a great thing for us to be able to stay in touch with you. I tried to get in, in touch with somebody this past week that had just recently moved, hadn't put new address, new contact information in the welcome books, and that makes it more difficult to be able to do that, especially in a time of crisis. So if you can do that, that would be great. The second reason why we want you to do that is because we have lots and lots of people that come for the first time. And if they're sitting down at this end of the row and they've got like 10 people to their left and the welcome book comes by and no one has signed it, they're not going to sign it either, right? Because they're thinking, nah, nobody else signs it. Why should I? But if you sign it, put your name, put your email address, whatever, they're, they're going to say, oh, that's what everybody does. They'll fill it out, and then we can stay in touch with them. We can, uh, we can send them a letter that says, thanks for coming. We actually have, uh, have somebody that makes a phone call to everybody who comes for the first time if we have their phone number, and that writes them a note and, and gives them a, a Bigby card. And some of you are saying, well, wait a second, I never got a Bigby card. Too late. Um, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, but what we say to them with that card is to, is we just say, Hey, thanks so much for coming. Use this big, big card. And when you do think of North point, think about what God's doing. And that's, that's a cool thing. So if you can fill those out each week, that'd be a great thing. Um, we're going to take up the offering now. And I, and I want to talk about the offering in a way that I don't usually as well either. Um, just to give you a little uh, uh, insight into North Point, we have a fiscal year that goes from September to August. Um, so we don't use calendar year in terms of our finances. We, uh, we mirror kind of the school year. And, um, and that helps us in terms of budgeting and all that kind of stuff. Um, our fiscal year just finished at, at the end of August. We have all of our records together. We have a finance team that goes through that information on a regular basis that works with the staff, that works, um, that works with the eldership to just kind of keep track of stuff. Here's the cool thing. At the end of our last fiscal year, after all of our expenses were paid, after all the income came in, 
we had a surplus of $74,000. Now, that's, that's really cool. If you've not been around very long, you may not know this, but a couple of years ago, as a church, we went through a really, really tough time. And the impact on finances was significant in that process. So uh, a year or so ago, we scaled way back in terms of our budget to say we want our budget to reflect what's actually being given. And um, so it was a it was a very, very lean budget last year. And um, people gave uh, gave generously and it created this surplus, which was really, really cool. So the finance team made a recommendation to the eldership, which is our leadership here at the church. Eldership affirmed the recommendation from the finance team. And here's what's going to happen with that $74,000. $20,000 of the $74,000 is going to go directly to ministry stuff, to reaching lost people, to helping people grow in their walk with Jesus. And that's a cool, cool thing. $20,000 as well is going to go to some facility stuff that had been put off for a really long time and we couldn't really get it done in the budget. And so that $20,000 is going to allow us to do some things around the, the structure on the property that will make a big, big difference. $15,000 of the $74,000 is going to go towards the mortgage and go directly to principal to speed up the process of uh, buying down the mortgage, which is cool. And $19,000, the $19,000 that's, that is, that I haven't talked about yet is actually going to go into our cash reserves. We, we keep a cash reserve account for times when there might be crisis, when there may be something that, that we just don't anticipate. Our goal is to have about 10 to 12 weeks of cash reserves. This will take us to just on the, on the bottom side, well, a little bit below 10 weeks. Um, we have a bigger budget this year, so those numbers went up. Um, it's all a really good thing. So I'm here to say this morning, celebrate the goodness of God. It's just a really cool thing. Um, 74,000, 20 for ministry, 20 for facility, 15 for mortgage or for principal on the mortgage and 19 in the cash reserves. And let's pray and thank God for that. Okay. Let's do that. Yeah. God, God, we thank you for your goodness, for your ability to sustain us when things are hard. And, um, and God, for your blessing, blessing, blessing. We know, Lord, that everything we have comes from you. That, um, that, the, that the checks that we put in, the cash gifts that we give, uh, whether we give electronically or whatever, God, that, that, that it all comes from you anyway. And uh, we, we're just grateful that you allow us to give it back to you. And uh, we ask that you'd bless it, that you'd keep us on target, that we'd reach people who are far from you, that would help people grow who are, who are here, that we might be the church that you call us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, the, uh, about two and a half years ago, something incredible happened in England. The prime minister of Great Britain is a guy named David Cameron. Um, that's not a name you hear a lot unless you pay attention to world news, but that's David Cameron um, up behind me. Um, he went out two and a half years ago, uh, March 1st of 2013. He went to visit a farmer in England. Uh, he went to talk to him. I don't know what he went to talk to him about, but he went there when he left this farmer's house and, uh, and drove back towards London. 
he's with his Secret Service detail, two guards who are with him. They're driving through the countryside and they hear this sound outside of their vehicle that causes the vehicle to stop because it's this really loud, plaintive, hurt sound. It's the sound of a ewe lamb that is stuck in a swamp. And so uh, David Cameron, the prime minister of Great Britain, actually stopped the car saw where the lamb was, the, 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 the ewe lamb had actually gone into the mud because her two baby lambs were in the mud as well. And, uh, and he stops the car, sends word back to the farmer about this lamb being stuck. And when the farmer comes to where the lamb is in this swampy um, pit of an area, he discovers that the prime minister of England is up to his waist in mud Um, having walked out into this swamp to try and rescue this lamb. Um, By the time he got there, um, Cameron had gotten the lamb out of the mud and put it up onto dry land and was working his way back out of the muck and mire. The two baby lambs drowned in the mud, but he saved one, which is a pretty incredible thing. Um, It's not every day that you would think about the head of state of a nation, right? walking out into the mud to save a lamb. But that's what Cameron did in 2013. There's another head of state, a king of a nation, that I want to talk about this morning. His name is David. Um, David was the second king of Israel. Um, He wasn't born into royalty. It wasn't something that he had a lot of resources. He wasn't like Prince William or Prince Prince Harry, that that they grew up with all of the stuff uh, associated with royalty. David was um, actually from just a regular, everyday family. He was the youngest of seven sons to his father, Jesse. And he grew up really um, out in the countryside being a shepherd, taking care of sheep. It would have been a normal, everyday occurrence for David to be involved with, with going out and rescue a sheep like Cameron did that was stuck in the mud. Because sheep are stupid. Uh, you know, they, they uh, see some grass and they say, I want that grass. It doesn't matter what's in between them. They go out in mud and, and get stuck like, like the lamb that we already talked about. David would have had a lot of time as a shepherd. Um, his days would have been spent... Um, trying to trying to make sure that the, that the group of sheep stayed healthy, that they ate the right things, that they were protected from um, from predator animals. David became very skilled with a staff, with a, uh, a stick. He became very skilled with with a, a sling to be able to fire rocks at bear lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, uh, you know, to, to protect those sheep from them. That was David's deal. David is the guy who wrote most of the Psalms that we find in the book of Psalms. Uh, Over the next eight weeks, we're talking about a different Psalm every week in a series called All That Jazz. And the reason that we're calling it All That Jazz is because it's because there's some similarities between the Psalms and jazz. Jazz music comes from deep inside and, and jazz music can be real joyful and it can also be really plaintive, real depressing, real, uh, this expression of, of pain that's deep inside of us. And the Psalms are that way too. Some of the Psalms are, are celebrative. They're saying, oh, God is so good. It's incredible what he's done. And some of the Psalms are, are they, they just express this sense of frustration and depression and saying, God, I don't get it. I need your help. Today's Psalm is one of those. Psalm 40. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 40. It's a psalm that David wrote. David 
ultimately became famous as a musician. He became famous as the king of Israel. But as a boy, he was just a shepherd. Nobody. He was the guy with the sling that that fired the rock into the giant Goliath's head, knocked him out, killed him, killed him there. And in verse or in chapter 40, we find this psalm of deliverance. It's a psalm that could have been sung by this lamb in the mud that Cameron rescued it says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David starts and says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Um, in the Hebrew, it actually says, waiting, I waited. Uh, there's a little bit of redundancy, right? In I waited patiently, except it's not really redundant, is it? Because sometimes we can wait impatiently. We wait, but not happily and not patiently at all. Uh, this past week uh, on, on uh, Thursday, Friday, I can't remember which day it was. I was uh, at the gym playing racquetball, and there was a guy who's there pretty consistently with me. And he said, hey, what's going on this weekend? And I said, oh, I'm preaching from Psalm 40. And he said, Psalm 40, really? Um, African-American older uh, guy, just great fun, named Charles. And he said, you're preaching from Psalm 40. And I said, yeah. He opens up his locker, takes out a piece of notebook paper that's been folded over like six times, unfolds it, and there in his handwriting, he he had written out Psalm 40. Said Psalm 40, I love it. I waited. I waited. I waited. I waited. And then I waited some more. Uh, you know, the, the, David starts this psalm by saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. Waiting's a hard thing for us to do, isn't it? Uh, we. Because we have so much around us, because we have so much control over over our lives, there are so many things that we can do to to make sure that things happen quickly. It's difficult for us to wait. Uh, What are what are you willing to wait for? If you think about the times that you have to wait, what is it that's easy to wait for and what is it? That's hard to wait for. I think it's I think it's easy to wait for something that we know is going to be really good and that we know for sure is going to come. Right. And it's hard to wait for things that are kind of um, uh, kind of foggy that we're not sure really exactly what they are. And we're not sure when it's going to come. We, we tend to think a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And so it's hard for us to wait. Let me ask some questions. Are you willing to wait for the right job. That's a hard question in it because sometimes we just have to have a job, but sometimes we pursue things on our own terms. Don't we? We pursue things in our own timing and we say, I, yeah, that I know I kind of want that job, but I'm just going to take this job because it's there and it's available to me. I wait. Are you willing to wait for the right job? Are you willing to wait for a new car or a new house or a new phone until you can afford it as opposed to saying, no, I got to have it now. I've got to have the new phone now. 
I've got to have the new car. Now, even though that means I'm going to be paying 24% interest for the next 17 years, you know, for that phone, I've got to have it now. What is it that you're willing to wait for? Are you willing to wait for the right spouse? For the right person to date? For the right friends? Or are you willing to settle and, and pursue a relationship that you know is not the right relationship from God? Because you've got to have it now. Many parents... Um, rush their kids into things. As a, as a guy who's done ministry for the last 35 years or so, um, one of the things that I can point to over and over and over again with parents is that every parent, pretty much every parent, thinks that their kid is a genius, right? That, they, that they've um, developed faster and better than anyone else. And so I, I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with a parent where a parent said, yeah, I know they're supposed to be in second grade, but my son, my son is so smart. I know he's only four, but he should should probably be in that second grade class because he's so smart. Um, Little guys, it's just a pain because you have to kind of work through that process. It's harder when they reach teenage years. You know, I can remember a conversation very clearly with a family that our requirement to go on a mission trip out of the country was that you had to have finished ninth grade. And the parents came to, to me and said, oh, our son, he's... He's in eighth grade. He's in eighth grade biologically. You know, that's his body is that right age. But he's homeschooled. He's homeschooled and he's doing ninth and tenth grade work. So he ought to be able to go on the mission trip. Right. Here's what I here's what I've discovered. Um, And it, it, it applies to kids, but it also applies to us. So much of the time when there's a requirement that causes someone to wait, it's there for the protection and for the provision of that particular child. That when they go on a mission trip as a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old, they're going to get that experience. That experience is going to make an impact on their lives in a different way than it would if they were 13 or 14. As a younger kid, they're not going to get the whole cultural thing. They're not going to see the bigness of God. They're, just, they're going because it's a cool thing. And, and so they miss the impact that God really has planned for that trip because they're not equipped to be able to handle it. Can I hear an amen? Okay. Yeah, you're, everybody's tracking. The other thing that happens with that is that when that same kid who goes on that mission trip when they're 13 or 14... By the time that they are 16 or 17 or 18 years old, they've already experienced that trip multiple times. And its impact, because they experienced it too early, it's not reaching them in the same, level, in the same way. And by the time they're 17, they're saying, eh, I don't want to go on that trip. I've, I've been there. I've done that. It didn't do that much for me. And, and so they miss the opportunity that God has for them in that, for it to change their life, to change their worldview, because they didn't wait until the right time. It's easy to look at that in terms of our kids, isn't it? That same thing is true for us as adults. There are experiences that God has for us, things that God has for us that he wants us to wait for. And when we say, no, I got to have it now, I got to have it now, I got to have it now. We miss what God has planned because we demand it in our own timing. I don't know what that is in your life. 
But hear the words of David when he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Um, In reality, we want everything right now, don't we? We want the perfect job now. We want to be able to retire now. We want to have kids now. We want to be able to go to Hawaii or Europe or Chicago now. We want to be able to lose 25 pounds now. We want the Lions to win now. (laughs) And we know that's not happening, right? First service, somebody shouted, Owen 16! Yeah, baby. We want to know the entire Bible now. We want to be rescued now. And so we wait impatiently. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Tolkien in, um, in Lord of the Rings has Gandalf say these words. Uh, many of you can probably quote it. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Tolkien was a man of faith, and that, that, that line describes God perfectly. God's never early. He's never late. He's always right on time. We wait patiently for the Lord to do his thing, not for the stars to align, not for a sign, not for a feeling. We wait for God to do his thing in his timing. And, and David says, when we wait, he inclined and heard my cry. Um, if, I, if I could encourage you to write down anything out of today's message, it's this out of, out of verse 1. God hears and answers. Never doubt that. God hears and answers. David says, He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog or the miry clay. God rescues us from the clutches of evil. He takes us out of the sludge and the muck and the grime of life. A miry bog is, is a field that's that's filled with soft mud. Um, have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in that kind of a deal where you're, you take a step in and you start to sink? You take another step and you sink further. And every step is labored. The farther you get in, the harder it is to get out. Um, your boots you know, sink down in. And if you try and pull them out, they make that sucking sound. You know, you know, you know what that's like. I, when we moved to Virginia and I, and I, uh, and I uh, started on the staff of New Life Christian Church, I remember, I remember very clearly, I think it was my first day of work after we moved there, they had a group, uh, a staff activity. There were about 12 of us on staff, and it was, it was one of those staff bonding days. You know, the group initiative things where you have to have everybody together scale the eight-foot wall, get everybody across and everybody back. You do the high ropes course. You know, you have everybody stand on a little 12-by-12 piece of wood without anybody touching any of the ground. The thing I remember about that was one of the one of the initiatives that we had to do was a a rope suspended from a tree and you had to swing across this field of muck, basically. So you had to grab it. You had to get enough um, momentum going to get to the other side. And then you had to let go at the right time. If you didn't, you ended up in a mess and be in a mess for the for the entire day. I think it was a little bit easier for the for the people who were smaller because you could swing farther. 
There was one guy on staff who was about 6'4", big, big guy, probably weighed 200, 220 pounds. And, and I remember watching him swing and he got to the end and didn't quite let go and um, started swing back and let go. And, and one foot, just one foot ended up in the mud. He ended up being able to pull himself out of that. But in pulling himself out of the mud, his shoe, his tennis shoe, ended up stuck in the mud. He, uh, he worked and worked and worked to try and get his, his foot out. Finally, his foot popped out and the shoe remained in the mud. Mud's nasty. We ended up getting that, that shoe out. But I remember for the next several weeks, every time he wore those shoes, it was foul. You know, you can never, you can never get that smell out of your clothes, out of your shoes when that happens, when you end up in the miry bog. That, that's the story of our life, right? When we live in the muck and in the mud, when we get surrounded by that junk, it sticks to us. And apart from the rescue of God, that stink stays with us no matter where we go. The picture that David says is, um, I, I cried out to God. I waited patiently for him. He heard my cry and he rescued me. He drew me out of the pit of destruction. The pit that would drown me just like that use two baby lambs. He drew me out of that and he set me on solid ground. Um, that's a picture that David would have experienced over and over and over again. He would have had his sheep get stuck. David would have figured out a way with the crook of his staff to be able to pull a, a sheep, to, to be able to help them get out onto dry land. Um, what's, what's your situation today? You know, after, after our musical worship, we say, oh, are you alive? Yeah, 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 I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. Who needs revival? Interesting, first service, a whole bunch of people. Yeah, I'm alive. Who needs revival? A lot of the same people. Yeah, that's the story of our life, right? We are alive in Christ, but we need revival. We need rescued on a daily basis. Don't feel like as you follow Jesus that all of a sudden you're never going to end up in that pit again. Because we do. And God comes and rescues us. Um, are, are you stuck in the miry clay today? Are, are you in that swamp that just seems to envelop you? It, it may be entirely, entirely of your own doing. You created the mess. You got into it. You made the choice to walk out in the center of it. And you're stuck there and you can't get out. On the other hand, it may not be your doing at all. You were in the right place at the wrong time. You were an available target. You were an unknowing victim of somebody else's sin. Regardless, you're out in the middle of this place filled with foul-smelling mud that's caught you and it doesn't want to give you up. If that's where you are, wait patiently for God and cry out to Him to rescue you. He takes you from that mud and sets your feet on a rock on solid ground where your feet and your steps are sure and secure, where you can make progress again, where you can begin to move forward in a way that you haven't been able to as you've been stuck in the mud. 
David says this. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Chris mentioned this at the beginning of the service, this whole concept of a new song. In the, in the Psalms, that phrase, a new song, is a phrase that, that's repeated many, many times. Psalm 33 says, sing to the Lord a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song, he has done marvelous things. Psalm 144, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp, I will, I will play to you. Why, why is that phrase so significant? Sing to the Lord a new song. He will put a new song in my mouth. It's because when God rescues us, when He deals with us in the here and now, an old song won't do. Because the old song is a testimony to His faithfulness in the past. And what we're experiencing right now needs a fresh expression A phrase. It needs something that's brand new that can get inside our heart and can express our love and and thanksgiving to God. When we did the 175th anniversary um, celebration earlier this summer, it was it was such a neat night. Um, People together just talking about how God has been faithful to North Point for 175 years. The, The biggest part of what we did that night was to worship. And we um, we sang songs that had been sung by the church over the last 175 years. We started with old hymns and, and kind of worked our way up into the 1970s. You know, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Um, uh, we went from the 70s to the 80s and from the 80s to the 90s with all with this music that that at that point in time were new songs for the church to be able to express what God was doing, how he was working at that point in time. It it was such an incredible experience because those songs took us back to the faithfulness of God over the years, back to the time when there was just a piano and organ, just a piano, sometimes just singing a cappella, back to the time where God had been faithful in ways that, that we had forgotten about because time had passed. But you know what? When God is working in your life and he rescues you from the miry pit, how great thou art is, is maybe not the right expression of praise for what's going on right now. Because that's associated with other things that have happened in the past. So when we sing, this is the air I breathe, I'm desperate for you. That's, that clearly, that's a great expression of what's inside us. But that's associated with a different time and place and circumstances. And God wants us to have a new song in our heart. I'd, I'd encourage you uh, to don't be resistant to using new music. It's, uh, I, the, the song this morning, such an incredible concept. You're a good, good father. I want to I be able to sing that song all the time because I think that that truth is so relevant for so many of us. This concept that God is the God who loves us, who reaches down and hugs us, who embraces us. God, you're a good, good father. We need that new song, that new expression of praise. New adventures, new rescues need new songs. What will the result of that be? David says, many will see, many will fear, many will put their trust in God. When God is working in our lives, other people see it, right? When he is doing stuff in our lives, people see the changes. 
Just a few weeks ago, Brianna Bonin was, was baptized. And if you remember her video that we shared before her baptism, such an incredible thing because she's telling her story about how God had, had really called her out, out of her environment. And, and she said, you know, at work right now, people are asking me, Brianna, what's, what's going on? You're different. What's going on? And she's able to say, hey, you know, the thing that's different is that I'm trying to live for Jesus. I'm trying to serve God on a daily basis. That's the thing that you're seeing. David says, many will see and many will fear. What's that about? Where's the fear come? You know what? If you're stuck in the mud and you see somebody out of the mud get rescued and put on dry ground and begin to make progress, begin to have solid ground underneath them, they can, they can move, they're making progress, and you're stuck in the mud and you think there's no way out, that's a scary, scary thing. Has anybody ever been stuck in mud and think, I am I'm so worn out trying to get out. I don't know that I can get out. If the sun comes out and dries all this up, I'm going to be a statue. You know, I'm going to be stuck in here. Many will see. Many will fear. Many will put their trust in God. When we're stuck in the mud and we see God at work in the people around us, it causes us to call out to him, to ask him to come in and rescue us. People will say, I see that and I want that in us. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on the first three verses and I'm just, I kind of want to read through the rest of the psalm and just, just make a few comments as, as we work through. Because what happens is David cries out to God, but he reflects on the goodness of God to respond to him. Verse 4 says this, blessed is the man. What did I say last week about blessed? Be in the right place in the right time. Being the right person in the right place in the right time and having the sense of God saying, oh, that's good. Just just God's blessing on them. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You've multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. No one can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have, required, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You know, um, just, just a quick comment on, on uh, verse 6 in there. In, in sacrifice and offering, you haven't delighted. But you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering, sin offering, you haven't required. David's whole context of how we would respond to God was a context. It was a response system of sacrifice and offering, right? If you do this sin, you sacrifice this animal. If you do this sin, you, you sacrifice this kind of animal instead. The whole system of atoning for sin was a system of sacrifices and offerings. And David says, God, that's not what you're about. You're about our hearts. You want our hearts, not just our, um, our sacrifice. Uh, let me make that relevant for us here. Sometimes I think that, that we have this perception of service of God has to be this heavy burden. You know, that if God calls us to do something and it's, and it's not hard, that's not God. Because God wants it to be hard, right? I don't think so. I think that there are things that God calls us to do that give that give us incredible sense of joy and fulfillment. 
Yeah, it may be hard, but the hardness is, is just, it's a, it's a little tiny piece because there's so much joy that comes from being the right person in the right place, doing the right stuff, and sensing God going, ah, that's great. God doesn't just want sacrifice and offering. He wants our hearts. He wants us to have that relationship with him. One other thing in this particular section that's kind of interesting, verse 6 through 8, um, If you look in Hebrews 10, here's your assignment for this afternoon. Go home and read Hebrews chapter 10. Write that down. And you'll find those three verses um, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10 um, attributed to Jesus. This is hundreds of years before Jesus was born. But the writer of Hebrews recognized that this was a messianic psalm. That when David said... Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart that those were the words of David. But those were also the words of the Messiah. Um, We'll talk more in coming weeks about messianic Psalms, about seeing Jesus in the Psalms of David. Uh, Incredible thing. Uh, Verse nine. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I haven't concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David says, you know, because you've rescued me, I can't keep my mouth shut. Think about it. When you experience something that turns your life around, you can't help but talk about it, right? When you experience rescue from the pits of despair, you can't just do life and say, oh, yeah, that was pretty cool. You want to tell everyone about it. And that's what David describes there. Recognize if if we can say, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. If we can point to the places in our lives where God has rescued us, that has to bubble out. It has to be spoken. It can't be held on to. Because when God does his work in us, it creates ripples that expand out into uh, every aspect of our lives. It's the rock that goes into the lake, into the stream, and spreads those waves out that begin to touch everything in the distance. If God's been working in your life, that's got that's got to begin to impact the things that you say, the things that you do. Um, Oftentimes in the church, we do classes and um, seminars and all kinds of stuff about how to how to share your faith. We talk and say, oh, this is what it means to do evangelism kinds of things. In reality, all it is is telling your story. All it is is saying, you know what, God, here's what I know. I was in the pit. I was stuck in that mud. I was living a stinky life and God rescued me. That's what I can tell you. And I can tell you how to get to know him and he can do the same for you. Verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I can't see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me recognize in this psalm of david he's celebrating the fact that god has rescued him on one hand and on the other hand he's saying my evils have encompassed me beyond number i find myself back in the pit god so when we say yeah i'm alive i'm alive i'm alive 
revive me. That mirrors what's in Psalm 40. This sense that, yeah, God does rescue me, but I just keep finding myself in the pit and and needing God to rescue me again. David says, my situation's desperate. Evil has overcome me. It's, uh, there's there's more, more junk in my life than the hairs on my head. You know how many hair follicles are in an average person's head? Not someone like me. Um, 100,000 hair follicles on the average person's head. And each hair follicle will, uh, will produce 20 hairs over a person's lifetime. You didn't know that you were going to learn that today at church, did you? 100,000 hair follicles. And God says in his word that he knows exactly how many hairs are on our heads. He knows every part of us. David says, you know what? My sin, my iniquity, it's greater than the number of hairs on my head. My situation is desperate. Evil overcomes me. Verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Have people like that in your life that you feel like they're always there pointing their finger at you, just waiting and hoping that you'll mess up. So they say, oh, you're not really a Christian. You would if you were if you really follow Jesus, you wouldn't do that. Or maybe they just find joy in your trouble. Um, you, you can hear that voice there that says, aha, aha. David says, be pleased, God, to deliver me. Quickly come and help me because my life is full of those people. Verse 14 or 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help, my deliverer. Don't delay, oh my God. I'd I'd encourage you, if you have the ability, memorize verse 17 of Psalm 40. Memorize the first couple of verses as well, because I just think they're so good. But what better way to finish that psalm than to say, As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You, God, are my help and my deliverer. Don't delay, oh my God. Uh, Psalm 40 is, is I think, just an exceptionally interesting um, psalm. There's so many pieces to it and such a clear image there. I, I think the first time I really recognized the words of Psalm 40 um, were one of the times that, that I heard you too play their song 40 Bono is the lead singer of U2 and um and in 1999 he wrote a, a column a chapter in a book whatever where he talked about growing up in Ireland with a mom who was a Protestant and his dad was a Catholic if you remember that period of history there's all kinds of violence that's taken place in Ireland between the Protestants and the Catholics and Bono talks about how that shaped his view of the world um he uh 
he, he talked about how scripture, how he loved scripture, but grew to de, really to despise religion, to despise all that fussing and fighting that was going on. Um, he said that he loved the characters of the, of the Bible. He loved their flaws. He loved their strengths. And, it sh- and, and reading scripture shaped his view of the world. He finished his article with these words. Years ago, lost for words and with 40 minutes of recording time left before the end of our studio time, we were still looking for a close, uh, a song to close our third album, War. We wanted to put something explicitly spiritual on the record to balance the politics and romance of it, like Bob Marley or Marvin Gaye would. We thought about the Psalms, Psalm 40. There was some squirming. We were a very white rock group. And such plundering of the scriptures was taboo for a white rock group unless it was in the service of Satan. Psalm 40 is interesting in that it suggests a time in which grace will replace karma and love will replace the very strict laws of Moses. In other words, Bono says, it will fulfill them. I love that thought. David, who committed some of the most selfish as well as selfless acts, was depending on it. That the scriptures are brimful of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries used to shock me. Now it's a source of great comfort. Forty became the, song, the closing song at U2 shows. And on hundreds of occasions, literally hundreds of thousands of people of every size and shape of t-shirt have shouted back the refrain, pinched from Psalm 6, how long to sing this song? I had thought of it as a nagging question, pulling at the hem of an invisible deity whose presence we glimpse, glimpse only when we act in love. How long hunger? How long hatred? How long until creation grows up and the chaos of its precocious, hellbent adolescence has been discarded? I thought it odd that the vocalizing of such questions could bring such comfort to me, too. We're going to finish the message, finish our service this morning with Psalm 40 from you, too. Watch us sing along. I want, I want you to, to, to vocalize that question, how long? But I want you to hear the words of Psalm 40 as well. It may be that as we sing that, that through the message you've had this sense that you are stuck in the mud, that you're stuck in the miry clay, that your life is full of that horrible smell of stink that comes from the swamp. I want to invite you, if that's where you are, to just come down front while we sing and to pray. And, and uh, if you've got a friend that comes up, somebody from your life group, come down and pray for them while we sing. It may be that just where you sit, that you have this sense of recognition that, you're, that we're desperate for God and that we want to cry out to Him. I encourage you to do that, knowing that God is the one who can rescue. God is the one who can heal. God is the one who can provide for us. Let's stand together. Let's sing.